millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where in this episode we shall be looking at Bram Stoker's Legend of the Mummy from 1998. A note before we start, I have felt recently that these episodes have become a little bit stale, so I'll be going back to a more scripted format. However, I have learned a lot from presenting this podcast, and I feel that this next phase of episodes may be the best yet. It's not that everything I say will be scripted, there will probably be a bit of a hybrid here, but I feel that there is a better way of presenting than how I have been doing. Further, there will likely be one or two episodes in the future where I will start to have guests on, and these will be in a less scripted format. In terms of the layout of the episode, it will be the same as usual, so we shall start with a little background information on the film, then a section on historical accuracy, and finally, I shall review the film. Right, let us get started. You are an art historian who specialises in ancient Egypt. One day, you get a call from an ex-girlfriend telling you that her father has entered a strange coma. You go over to investigate the case. However, little do you know that you are going to encounter something far worse than you could possibly have imagined. Little do you know that you shall witness the legend of the mummy. The budget for this film was $2 million, which comes to about 3.6, maybe 3.7 million after inflation. This film is also yet another film based on Bram Stoker's novel, Jewel of the Seven Stars. And interestingly, Aubrey Morris, who plays Dr. Winchester in the film, also appeared in the Hammer Horror film, 
Blood from the Mummy's Tomb from 1971, where he played Dr. Putnam. This film was also based on Jewel of the Seven Stars. Also starring in Legend of the Mummy is Louis Gossett Jr., who is known for films such as Jaws 3D, An Officer and a Gentleman, and the Iron Eagle film series. Further, Amy Locan, who appeared alongside Brendan Fraser in films such as Airheads and School Ties, plays Margaret Trelawney in the film, and Lloyd Bogner, known for voicing Mayor Hamilton Hill in Batman the Animated Series and also New Adventures of Batman, plays her father, Abel Trelawney. Now it is time for the historical accuracy section of this film. In this section, I shall just go over what the film gets right and what it gets wrong. Firstly, about two minutes into the film, Abel Trelawney reads hieroglyphs on a stealer in the wrong direction. Later on in the film, Corbeck reads a hieroglyphs on the outside of the tomb of Queen Terra in the wrong direction also. Essentially, hieroglyphs can be read from left to right, right to left or top to bottom. But the reader always reads into the faces of the humans and animals depicted. At one point in the film, Robert Wyatt, who is one of the main characters, finds an ancient Egyptian instrument which he says is a small rake shaped like a snake with seven fangs. Price, his mentor, tells him that this is an object used to open the mouth during mummification. It is quite clear that Bryce is referring to the opening of the mouth ceremony here, and indeed multiple instruments were used during this ceremony. However, there are a few issues with what he is saying. Firstly, the opening of the mouth ceremony was typically done after the mummification process when the body had been taken to its tomb. At this point, a priest, known as a Sem priest, would touch the various parts of the body while saying incantations. For instance, he would touch the eyes and say, your eyes are given to you so that you may see. It was then believed that the deceased would see in the afterlife. He would touch areas such as the ears, nose and mouth and give the deceased back the use of those parts of the body in the afterlife. Therefore, although Bryce is not entirely right in what he is saying here, he is at least referring to a genuine Egyptian ceremony, and one of great importance. On another note, if you are ever in a museum or in Egypt itself, and you see a depiction of a man wearing a leopard skin, there is a good chance that you are looking at a Sem priest, whose job it was to carry out a large part of this ceremony. In the film, Queen Terra is claimed to be 5,000 years old, it is worth noting, not only is the earliest mummification dated to the 4th dynasty, which started in about 2600 BCE, but also the tomb shown in the film comes from a far later time period. 5,000 years ago, people tended to either be buried in simple pit burials or in mustaba tombs. In such burials, the body was still typically buried underground and a large mud brick superstructure known as a mastaba, was placed over the top of the burial in order to add further protection. Interestingly, the earliest pyramid in Egypt, the Step Pyramid of Djoser, 
was five Mustabas placed on top of one another, slowly getting smaller with size. Therefore, Mustaba tombs slowly turned into pyramid tombs over time. Either way, all of the evidence in the film points to Queen Terra being far younger than 5,000 years old. And in fact, in her tomb, they have a statue of the goddess Bastet in cat form. Bastet only began to be shown in cat form from about 1000 BCE. Before that, she was depicted as a lioness, and so Queen Terra realistically has to be less than 3,000 years old. In the film, Corbeck is said to be a thief and a tomb robber. However, during the 1960s and 70s, he is also said to be a respected Egyptologist. Further, Abel is supposed to be an Egyptologist of such high standing that the Egyptian government actually allow him to take things back to America to study. It is therefore a bit odd that in the flashback scene, which shows them finding the tomb of Queen Terra, as soon as they find a tomb, Abel says, All right, pack her up and the workers start removing all of the items from the tomb. No measurements are taken, no stratigraphy is drawn, no photos have been taken. Essentially, his actions here are the epitome of a tomb robber, not a good and respected Egyptologist or archaeologist. I suppose a one positive note, at least in this film, they don't go and blow up the tomb using dynamite like they do in so many others. It is also worth noting that this scene takes place in a location known as the Valley of the Sorcerer. Neither this location nor Queen Terra are factual, and were instead inventions by Bram Stoker purely for Jewel of the Seven Stars. However, Queen Terra was apparently influenced by the female pharaoh Hatshepsut, who I have spoken about on previous episodes, and I suspect that the Valley of the Sorcerer was largely inspired by the Valley of the Kings, which was the burial place of the pharaohs and many high dignitaries of the New Kingdom. This was a time period which saw the likes of Tutankhamun, Hatshepsut, and all 11 pharaohs named Ramesses. At one point in the film, Corbeck picks up a statue and claims that it is of Queen Terra. The first problem here is pretty obvious. The statue he is holding is of a man, not a woman. The second problem is that this is not even an obscure pharaoh. The statue he is claiming to be Queen Terra is actually of Tutankhamun and is a replica of one of the statues found in his tomb. In yet another flashback scene, we see Queen Terra get killed using an iron blade. Although there is some possible evidence for iron, even dating as far back as the pre-dynastic period, so, before Egypt was unified, these are usually quite small pieces such as beads and usually only found in exceptional circumstances. Iron starts to appear more frequently in Egypt from about 1400-1300 BCE and even then it is largely due to trade rather than manufacturing in Egypt itself. Interestingly, Egypt does have the core natural ingredients to make iron and so it seems likely that it was more the know-how and ability to make it, rather than the lack of ingredients. However, in the tomb of Tutankhamun, an iron dagger was found, and it actually been made from the iron found in a meteor. That's right, Tutankhamun 
literally had a space dagger. In my opinion, you have to be a little bit insane not to find that incredibly cool. Later in the film, Corbeck and Robert find a key to the tomb of Queen Terra. In reality, the key they find is actually a mini obelisk. Obelisks were large pin-like structures that had a small pyramid-like shape on the top, known as a pyramidium. They were typically set up by pharaohs, often at the entrance of temples as a way of honouring a particular god and to show their affinity to that god. The earliest known obelisks come from Heliopolis, which today sits just outside of Cairo and were dedicated to the sun god Ra. The one thing that obelisks definitely were not, however, is keys. Finally, in the tomb of Queen Terra, they have the double crown of Egypt. However, the colours of the crown are incorrect. The red crown of Lower Egypt is normally, well, red, not black as it's shown in the film. Meanwhile, the white crown of Upper Egypt is unsurprisingly normally white, not gold. In fairness, however, Queen Terra is represented as being a ruler of Egypt, and so it does make sense that she would have this crown, as it was meant for the pharaohs. Although, to my knowledge, a double crown of Egypt has never actually been found. Overall, there are some hints that a little research has been done for this film, but not a lot at all. It is worth noting, however, that the main source material for this film was Jewel of the Seven Stars, not actual history. In this final section, I shall review the film and give my overall opinions. I shall start with the parts that I enjoyed. Firstly, I felt a little bit of effort went into making the artefacts in the film seem old. For instance, most of the artefacts were covered in dust and generally did not look too clean. This may seem like quite a small detail, but it was appreciated as many mummy movies do not do this. Secondly, of all of the adaptions of Jewel of the Seven Stars, this was easily the closest to the original source material that I have seen, although it is worth noting that there is one made-for-TV film from the 1970s that I have not yet reviewed. In all honesty, there is a point between the 1970s and 80s where it felt like every mummy movie was based on this novel, and I simply could not bring myself to watch yet another. I shall, however, return to this film at a later date. When it comes to Legend of the Mummy, both this film and Jewel of the Seven Stars talk about the rich aroma of Egypt present in Abel's office. Further, although the story has been updated to the modern day, it sometimes finds inventive ways of remaining faithful to the source material. For instance, in the book, after Abel falls into a strange coma, they find a letter from him saying that two people have to watch his body at all times. In the film, rather than a letter, he leaves a recording. Also, although this film does try to keep to the outline of the story, the parts that they have changed often keep the film a little bit intriguing for those aware of the source material, though it can also lead to the film getting a little bit confused at times. One such change in which the film becomes confusing is that they have the mummy of Terra alive pretty much from the start of the film. 
However, in fairness to the film, for the most part, they do a good job of not showing the mummy in its entirety to keep its mystique. Although, unfortunately, when you do see the mummy, it is far from convincing and more represents a child's Halloween costume. I shall now move on to the parts of the film that I liked for the wrong reason. For the most part, these are the parts that I found funny. To start with, the face of Tara on her coffin in Abel's office is cross-eyed. Presumably, this coffin was made for the film, and so I am not sure why the artist decided to make it this way. I will say, it did take away from the already lacking terror in this film somewhat, making it about as scary as Scooby-Doo goes to ghoul school. However, admittedly, this was not the main problem with the film, as the script, for the most part, was pretty terrible. Although, admittedly, often in a funny way. For instance... When Robert first meets the maid in Abel's house, one of the first things she asked him is whether he can get her into clubs. This seemed like a very odd thing to ask someone you have only just met, and seemed about as random as a monkey wearing a shoe on its head while smoking a McDonald's french fry. Although at first the script is funny, I will admit it did become a little tiresome by the end of the film. In one part of the film, the mummy uses its own bandages to strangle a man. According to the film, this mummy is supposed to be 5,000 years old. In reality, it would likely be closer to 3,000 years old, but even so, those bandages would have been incredibly brittle by this point and would have had more chance of making someone choke by the amount of dust coming off of them than actual strangulation. Though I suppose realistically, this is a film about a mummy that has been raised from the dead, and such arguments are a little silly. Finally, at one point, one of the characters gets trapped in sand and slowly starts to sink. A door then opens and cockroaches come out to finish him off. I'm going to guess that these were supposed to be scarab beetles, as by this point in time, these were becoming a bit of a trope of these films. I will admit, however that I do feel sorry for the actor who had to have cockroaches dotted over his face. Now finally, I shall move on to the sections of this film that I really didn't like. Firstly, the acting was mostly pretty bad. This never got to the point where the film was unwatchable, but much like with the script, it did get a little tiresome towards the end. I also felt that the actual characters were not particularly well written, and you did not get to know them all that well. This meant that it was hard to care about anyone in the film. In terms of the actual plot, I feel that I was only able to understand what was going on because I had previously read Jewel of the Seven Stars, and even then, because the film does change some of the story, I still did get a little lost at points. It is also worth noting that as the film goes on, it moves further and further away from the source material and becomes messier and messier. Although I do feel that there is always at least a vague outline of the story from the book. For someone who has not read the book, I feel this film would be very confusing. I also felt that the film was quite slow and this was largely due to a few subplots that only seemed to be there to make the film reach the hour and a half mark. 
I feel that this time could have instead been used to help us get to know the characters in the film a little better. If that had been done, I feel I may have cared about the outcome of the film. The reviews for this film were mostly pretty bad, and largely focused on how slow the film was and how bad the mummy looked. On IMDb, this film has 3 out of 10, and on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 15%. For myself, I would give this film a 5 out of 10. It is not the worst mummy movie I have ever seen, and in terms of films based on Jewel of the Seven Stars, ironically, I would say it is one of the better ones. Maybe beaten only by The Awakening from 1980, which admittedly had more money behind it and more star power. As I have stated before, however, it is worth noting that I am not a very big fan of Jewel of the Seven Stars, and so it could be argued that I am not the target audience for this film. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like the way this episode was done, or conversely, if you prefer for me to go back to the old way, please feel free to get in contact with me. You can send me an email at mummymoviepodcast at gmail.com and I am also on Instagram simply as mummymoviepodcast. I really do appreciate all feedback. Just a note before finishing, there will be a special episode on Thursday focused on what many believe to be the worst film ever made. A film which many believe is so bad that it's good. Plan 9 from Outer Space. This film has nothing to do with Egypt. It is just a film I wanted to do an episode on, and for this episode I shall be joined by a guest. Further, as usual, next week on Monday we shall be looking at Tale of the Mummy with one of my favourite actors of all time, Christopher Lee. See you then! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.